Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 123, Sarah Moss, Knowledge and Legal Proof. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Sarah Moss. Sarah is the William Wilharts Professor of Philosophy at the University of Michigan, where her work focuses on epistemology and the philosophy of language. She's also the author of the award-winning book, Probabilistic Knowledge. Our podcast today features Sarah's new article, Knowledge and Legal Proof, which was published in the Oxford Studies of Epistemology. In it, Sarah argues that the problems of legal proof, specifically the problems related to statistical evidence, these are highly related to the problem of knowledge in philosophy circles. So, for example, to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt requires that the judge or jury know that fact. My conversation with Sarah looks at this tie between knowledge and legal proof as we once more dive into the head-spinning world of statistical proof paradoxes. Sarah, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. To get our audience started, maybe you can set the stage for this really interesting paper that relates legal proof and this idea of knowledge. What's the puzzle or question that you're trying to solve here? And if you can offer some of your examples, I think that might help make things more concrete. Sure. Okay. So there's a case that's quite legendary from Charles Nesson, the prison yard example, where we're imagining that there are 25 incarcerated people milling about a prison yard and 24 of them get together and gang up and murder the prison guard. And the question that Nesson asks is, suppose the local prosecutors just pick somebody at random from the yard and they bring him to trial for conspiracy to murder. And as a juror in this case, if you imagine yourself sitting on the jury, you're perfectly justified in having 0.96 credence that the defendant is guilty of the crime with which he's charged. But it seems like there's just something missing. Most people think, yeah, that's really not the right kind of evidence that grounds conviction. And furthermore, it's not just that 0.96 isn't high enough. Like if it had been a thousand people in the yard and 999 of them ganged up to murder the guard, there's just something that's wrong with convicting people on the basis of merely statistical evidence. So I think this is really structurally similar to a case that's really familiar to epistemologists where we're asked to imagine, suppose you bought a ticket in a lottery and the lottery has 25 tickets. You can't just go around saying, my ticket lost the lottery if the results have not been announced yet. And it seems like epistemologists are quite sure what's missing in this case. Why you can't just say, I lost the lottery is that you don't know that you lost the lottery. And even though you're justified in having this really high credence that you lost. So to me, these feel like structurally very similar examples. So one thing I argue in the paper is 
hey, what's missing in this prison yard case? The reason you can't convict the defendant is that you don't know that he did it on the basis of this merely statistical evidence. So certainly for me, my interest in these statistical proof paradoxes goes back to even before I was in law school. I I actually read a civil action as an undergrad and learned about Charlie Nesson and the blue bus hypothetical. Is there a story about how you got into these questions? Oh, definitely. In fact, I have a long answer to this question. (laughs) So I wrote a book a couple years ago arguing that what philosophers call credences, also sometimes known as partial beliefs, subjective probabilities, I argued that those can actually constitute knowledge. So if you're just 0.7 sure of something, historically, philosophers have thought, look, if you know something, then it's just a black or white kind of thing. And this 0.7 in between gray attitude, this doesn't get to have this epistemic gold star of being knowledge. So I wrote in the book that No, I actually think there are different ways to be 0.7 sure of something. And if your 0.7 is based on just some random hunch, then, okay, that's not knowledge. But you can actually know that something is 0.7 likely if you have the right kind of evidence backing up your 0.7 attitude. So what I wanted to do was then use this idea that there can be probabilistic knowledge to shed light on problems of statistical evidence. For example, Mike Redmayne pointed out a problem for this intuitive idea that, hey, you have to know in order to count as proving something legally. He said, well, wait a sec, like in a civil case where the burden of proof is just preponderance of the evidence, it seems like because the standard of proof is so much lower, it's implausible that knowledge is required to find a defendant liable. And so in my book, I argued, hey, wait even just being 0.7 sure the defendant is liable, that could be knowledge or not knowledge. And what legal proof requires is that you have greater than 0.5 credence that the defendant is liable and that your high credence is knowledge. So this is a way of giving a knowledge account of legal proof that generalizes beyond just the criminal case to also civil cases. So the idea is, look, even in civil cases, we want verdicts to be based on knowledge. But in the civil cases, what they're based on is this kind of probabilistic knowledge. So I wrote the book, Probabilistic Knowledge, first. And then the problem of statistical evidence was an application of the theory that I was developing in the book. Let me start with the criminal cases first, just like you do in your article. And then we'll return to the civil cases. Let's talk first about reasonable doubt. For something that's so important, courts do really seem to have a lot of trouble defining or even talking about reasonable doubt. Why do you think that is? There's this famous paper by David Lewis, is this philosopher. It's titled Elusive Knowledge. And part of the point of his paper is as soon as you try to say what it takes to know something, like if I say, why do I know that I have hands? how do I know that that's true? You might think, well, okay, I know that's true if I can eliminate all the possibilities where I don't have hands. And then someone says, oh, like that I'm a brain in a vat. I have to be able to eliminate that possibility to know that I have hands. And David Lewis says, whoa, wait a sec. If we think that as soon as you start enumerating all the possibilities you have to rule out in order to know, as soon as you mention the possibilities in conversation, it looks like, well, maybe we don't have any knowledge at all. And so by mentioning possibilities, 
we can raise the bar for what it takes, the possibilities you have to eliminate to have knowledge. So for me, I think, oh, look, legal proof requires knowledge. That's the, the kind of point of the paper. I see a structurally similar thing happen when we try to say, what does it mean for something to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt? Because as soon as a judge is asked that question, say, imagine them trying to answer it by saying, just don't worry about doubts like that the defendant is just a victim of some government conspiracy. That's something unreasonable that you don't even have to pay attention to. Even if you think that that might be the case, just set that aside and ignore it. And then if you know, based on all the evidence that the defendant is guilty, you should convict. Well, as soon as the judge mentions that possibility, it's now impossible for a juror to set it aside and ignore it. So that's this sense in which, look, the reasonable doubt standard is elusive in the same way that David Lewis thought knowledge was elusive. By trying to define it, you might raise the possibilities that are unreasonable that you actively don't want the jurors to be considering. I wanted to go back to your idea of elusiveness a little bit. I thought one really interesting insight in your article was this idea that the reasonable doubt standard actually works in two directions. We usually think that the purpose of requiring beyond a reasonable doubt is to help or protect criminal defendants, right? We want them to have a really high standard of proof before they end up going to prison. But as you suggest, in some ways, the reasonable doubt standard is also to counteract the fact finder from inflating the proof standard, that historically there was a concern about jurors who were reluctant to convict based on any doubt. Tell us a little bit more about that idea. Right. So historically, you had a bunch of Puritan jurors who thought they would go to hell for eternity if they falsely convicted a defendant. So it was quite hard in that environment for people to get convictions. And so they were really like the fact finder analog of the ambitious undergraduate philosophy major who comes into your office and says, I just think I don't know anything. I really can't rule out the possibility that I'm a brain in a vat and I'm just disturbed that I have no knowledge at all. How am I supposed to go around living my life? There's a kind of counseling that you do for that undergrad. It's helpful to point out that there's a kind of therapy that one needs to do to counsel them to set aside certain unreasonable possibilities that you think, look, practically you ought not be considering them. And similarly, the unreasonable doubts that we're trying to get jurors to ignore are things that would prevent them from convicting in absolutely any kind of trial. So what I like doing, actually, when I'm trying to explain to people, hey, what do I think conviction requires in a given case, is to say, well, look, all the time, we're making practical decisions in our lives on the basis of less than absolutely certain evidence. So say I open a bottle of aspirin and I take some aspirin. Well, can I rule out with absolute maximal certainty that someone has just replaced the aspirin with cyanide? No, I can't, but I'm willing to act on my justified belief that no, in fact, it's aspirin, not cyanide, even though, I mean, the risk in this case of getting it wrong might be death for me. 
So analogously, there is some evidence such that it does suffice to convict a defendant, even when that defendant's life or liberty is at stake. It's just that we need to be careful about considering the stakes in defining like what kinds of evidence is actually sufficient for conviction. But we shouldn't let ourselves be tempted by this undergraduate tendency towards skepticism of a very sweeping variety. We can have the kind of knowledge we need to return convictions in cases, just like we have the knowledge we need to act on in ordinary life. I buy this idea that we have to have enough knowledge to act on something. We don't necessarily have to know it to an absolute certainty. But on that standard, at least in some contexts, the statistical evidence problem shouldn't actually arise. If I've got 999 people and one person who I don't know, maybe I'm okay with acting on it. In fact, for the blue bus, I'm comfortable acting on that particular knowledge that, say, 80% of the buses were operated by the blue bus company. Is there something different about the legal context versus how we go about things in everyday life that make the standard a little bit higher than the act on it or actionability idea? Yeah. So the idea is there's nothing special about a legal context as opposed to a practical context. Really, the thing you're pointing to is that And we can just focus on the legal contexts that we come across when we're looking at cases where people present statistical evidence. Not all statistical evidence is actually created equal. So in my view, sometimes statistical evidence can successfully ground knowledge. So for example, do you know the weed hopper case? Yes. I was not familiar with the Weed Hopper case until I read your article. And I'm not sure that everyone in the audience does. So you should definitely introduce us to it. Okay. So the idea is that Kramer versus Weed Hopper, Kramer was injured in this plane crash because there was a defective bolt that was sold as part of this Weed Hopper airplane kit. So Weed Hopper got, as it turns out, like 90% of its bolts from this one company, Lawrence, 10% of its bolts from Hughes. And so Kramer filed this complaint alleging strict product liability against Lawrence, the source of 90% of the bolts. And the court granted summary judgment to Lawrence saying that statistical evidence was insufficient to prove that the bolts probably came from Lawrence. And then the appellate court reversed the judgment saying, look, if you've got two suppliers of this dangerous product and one of them supplied 90% of the parts, that's sufficient to withstand motion for summary judgment. So in this kind of case, I actually agree with the appellate court. I think you can know that it's more likely than not that the bolt that injured Kramer came from Lawrence. However, I don't think, for example, that if you have, let's say, 10 dogs running around a playground and one of them bites Bobby. And let's say nine of the 10 dogs belongs to say Jones and one dog belongs to Smith. I'm not sure that the merely statistical fact that Jones owns most of the dogs in the yard suffices to prove that Jones is more likely than not liable for the bite. So this is what I mean when I say, look, 
not all statistical evidence is created equal when it comes to grounding probabilistic knowledge, partly because what we need to think about is, well, what do these probabilities, like the 10% chance, what alternative possibilities ought we be considering? And in the product liability case, I think we don't need to rule out the idea that, for instance, oh, maybe Hughes is a really horrible company that makes 10% of the bolts, but they're all just completely shoddy. Whereas when the individual Joneses attitudes are at issue, I'm not sure that you can hold this individual person liable on the basis of what looks like structurally similar statistical evidence. So fascinating, right? So there's something moralistic about that. So when you talk about the products liability case, the immediate reaction I have is strict products liability for manufacturing defect. We're not really concerned about blame. We're just trying to do loss spreading. We're comfortable with saying on the basis of probabilities, we're just going to make you be the insurer. So we don't care anymore about whether or not we're going to tag the 90% company with liability in this case. But when you're talking about the dog, that seems to require some kind of blame. You let your dog out or you weren't monitoring your dogs properly. And then suddenly there, we actually do need something extra to make that legal determination. Yeah. The underlying question is, hey, what makes a doubt something that we really ought to be considering it? Like something, what makes a doubt able to defeat knowledge, whether it's propositional knowledge or probabilistic knowledge. And what we're pointing to is whether a doubt is worth considering or whether a doubt is powerful enough to undermine knowledge, it doesn't actually supervene on how probable that doubt is. You would get a similar phenomenon when, for instance, some people just intuitively feel like profiling a person that you see in your hallway, say, if you know that 90% of the women who work in a building are actually administrative assistants. So then you say, oh yeah, she's probably an administrative assistant. That feels different to people epistemically, like that 0.9 is less justified than let's say profiling furniture. Something distinctive about doubts concerning individuals is part of what makes those doubts able to defeat knowledge, even when from a probabilistic perspective, they might look quite similar. I think this is a very interesting idea here that not all probabilistic knowledge is the same or not all probabilistic evidence is the same. In some ways, I think about Ron Allen's recent work with Chris Smickless, where they say all these statistical puzzles are red herrings. Courts actually do accept naked statistical evidence all the time. And so really, these famous hypotheticals are irrelevant. I think what you're saying is, They may accept statistical evidence, so the bar is not absolute, but then there are certain kinds that we have trouble with and that we need to pull or tease these cases out. Am I getting that right? Would that be your response to Ron? So when Ron heard this paper, the Knowledge and Legal Proof paper, he pointed out some courts accept lots of statistical evidence. And in my view, that's actually good for me. Like it's a virtue of my account that it does allow that not all statistical evidence is created equal. Whereas many existing accounts of statistical evidence 
aren't capable of noting some really important distinctions. For instance, a sensitivity account that says, hey, statistical evidence isn't sensitive and therefore it's always incapable of grounding verdicts. It really treats all statistical evidence as being the same. Whereas I think I agree with Ron Allen that sometimes it can be appropriate to base verdicts on statistical evidence if that statistical evidence really does ground knowledge. So let me give you a minute to say anything that we overlooked in your ideas about proof standards, particularly in the preponderance context. Yeah, this is in a slightly different direction, but something that I would love to throw out to your audience, because I think it's something that's a practical upshot of all of this theorizing that people might really care about in the end, has to do with a more current project that I'm working on about how knowledge is subject to pragmatic encroachment. And so putting that together with this account of legal proof, you get that legal proof is subject to encroachment. To just get this phenomenon of pragmatic encroachment on the table, let me just tell a little thought experiment. So let's suppose that this kid, Oliver, is in second grade and he's working at a bake sale for his school. And then imagine a customer walks up to buy some cookies and Oliver says, oh, well, I looked at all the labels and I know like these cookies are chocolate and I know these have nuts and I know these don't have nuts. And the customer says to him, look, do you really know that these cookies don't have nuts? Because sometimes bakers mix up their labels and if I eat a nut, I'll just die. And so now it actually sounds bad for Oliver to say, oh yeah, I know those cookies don't have nuts because in this high stakes case, Oliver doesn't count as knowing that the cookies are nut free even though maybe at ordinary bake sale interactions where the stakes are really low, like the customer just happens to not like nuts, reading a label would be a perfectly fine way to learn, to come to know the ingredients of cookies. So examples like these make philosophers conclude that whether this kid knows cookies are nut-free can depend on what's at stake, like how bad it is if this kid Oliver turns out to be wrong. So in general, whether a belief is knowledge can depend on the stakes. And for me, I think, look, similarly, whether a defendant has been proved guilty beyond a reasonable doubt might depend on what's at stake for the defendant if the defendant's convicted. So are they going to get 20 hours of community service or 25 years in prison? And one practical upshot of this is that currently your listeners will know that the bifurcated trial system doesn't allow juries to know the potential sentences that a defendant is facing when they're trying to decide whether the defendant's been proved guilty or not. So you have actual cases where a defendant is on trial for stealing some batteries, but is facing 25 years in prison. So this is like a case in California from the 90s, because it was a three strikes case. And the prior convictions were never actually mentioned at trial. So this defendant is convicted on the basis of pretty meager evidence. And then only later do the jurors find out, oh, by the way, that person just got sentenced to 25 years. So in my view, it's actually really tragic that jurors don't learn the potential sentences that defendants are facing. And I understand why the Supreme Court originally argued, hey, look, the sentence they're facing, that's irrelevant. And whether they're facing 25 years or 20 hours of community service doesn't have anything to do with 
the question of whether they committed the crime or not. And the job of the fact finders is just to find the facts. So how could this possibly be relevant information? We should just exclude it because all it could do would be to cloud the juror's judgment because the role of the juror is to find the facts. But to me, that's making a fallacy. So compare, if you were to say to this kid, Oliver, hey, does this cookie have nuts in it? He says, oh yeah, I know those don't have nuts. And then you say, okay, great. You feed it to you know some toddler and says, because you know this toddler will die if he eats a nut. I mean, Oliver could be justly really upset that he didn't actually know the stakes when asked to evaluate whether the cookie had nuts in it or not. So I think we're putting jurors in a similar situation when we shield the consequences of verdicts from them. So I feel like there's room for legal reform here. Some legislators have been pursuing it, but not successfully so far. Two quick thoughts before we wrap up. One is, I think there's psychological literature that shows that when subjects are given the actual penalties, they will actually adjust their standard of proof, even though the standard of proof is defined based on the severity of the punishment that's being given. The other thought that I had here is, in some ways, this is very similar to the traditional rules versus standards debate, which is that what we do in the legal system is we have a rule that creates a change in the standard of proof between civil and criminal contexts, but we don't change the standard of proof in a more granular way, which is in the criminal context where the stakes are high, we have the reasonable doubt standard, but we don't then say, well, but the penalty here is 25 years, so you're going to up that standard some more. So I think there's some interesting trade-offs there with whether or not we want that granularity, which I think is what you're proposing. Sarah, thanks for taking the time to talk about this fascinating link between knowledge and the proof standards. I, for one, always love talking about statistical proof, and so I enjoyed grappling with these problems from your framework. Great having you on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to see the bridges that are being built today between law and other evidence-related fields, such as philosophy, statistics, and psychology. After all, the law obviously isn't alone in dealing with problems of proof, and learning across disciplines is almost always illuminating and often fruitful. Sarah's recent work proves this point. Legal proof clearly shares a deep connection with the problem of knowledge in philosophy, and her work opens up new avenues for thinking about the classic questions about statistical evidence. Sometimes I wonder why these problems have captivated me for so long. I think it may be because my view of them seems to change based on the perspective that I take, or even my mood. Consider the example that Charlie Nesson posed long ago about playing cards. Is there a difference between A, pulling a random card and knowing that with probability 12 out of 52 that it's a picture card, and B, having your poker opponent flash a card and thinking, with probability 12 out of 52, that what you saw was a picture card. On some days, 
I think there's absolutely no difference. That this angst over naked statistical evidence is nostalgic nonsense. Probabilities are pretty much all the same. They help us make decisions, so we should just get over this hand-wringing. But at other times, the problem comes roaring back. Would I really convict in the prison yard hypothetical? There just seems to be something different about those cases. And taking a page out of Sarah's book, perhaps it's knowledge that makes the difference. I'm looking forward to reading Sarah's future work, including her new project on pragmatic encroachment and how it relates burdens of proof with the consequences that are involved. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. Thanks also to Harvard Law School, which is hosting me for the fall semester. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Renee Hawkins, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.